0: The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: They called it the drone papers, but in the documents they provided, drones are actually only a small part of the operations that they uncovered. In Djibouti, there were more manned aircraft than drones.
0: U.S. drones fly slowly across the skies of nations around the world looking for warning signs or searching for targets and sometimes firing hellfire missiles. It's a tactic that's been in place for years now. But how effective is it if militants can still strike in the heart of Paris? On this week's War College, we'll explore what we know about the program and how well
2: it works. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields.
0: Hello, and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor, Jason Fields.
2: And I'm Matthew Galt with War is Boring. Today we're speaking with Joseph Trevithick of War is Boring uh, about drones and targeted killing. Uh, As of this recording, two really interesting leaks occurred, both involving CIA director John Brennan. Uh, The first less interesting one is that uh, a teenager hacked his old AOL account and leaked some some draft copies of stuff uh, that really accomplished little other than confirming some things we already knew about torture and doxing his relatives. The other more interesting thing is that the Intercept uh, acquired from a source within uh, America's intelligence apparatus, a lot of documents about drones and how America's drone war works. Uh, They call it the Drone Papers, and we've spent the the past week kind of going through those, and we're going to talk about that today. Um, Joe, I was going to kind of kick it over to you and ask what you thought of the Drone Papers and kind of what your takeaway from them was.
1: Firstly, uh, it seemed pretty clear that they named them the Drone Papers to uh, evoke the same vibe of the Pentagon Papers, which sort of blew the lid off of how the U.S. government was presenting the war in Vietnam and how the U.S. government had been suggesting uh, that there was a lot more winning to be had in Vietnam and that they actually didn't really believe that inside the halls of the Pentagon. And that was a a major revelation. Drone papers in many ways confirm a lot of what uh, people who investigate this have known, thought they knew, uh, believed to have known about what what's going on. and in my opinion the most interesting thing was that drones are actually only a small part of the operations that they uncovered. Uh, they called it the drone papers, but in the documents they provided uh, in Djibouti at the one acknowledged American base in Africa, there were uh, more manned aircraft than drones based in Djibouti during the time frame covered in those reports, uh, including both, manned spy planes, and manned strike aircraft to carry out the strikes against these so-called high-value individuals, or you know, however you'd like to phrase them.
2: Right, Joe, you're talking about, uh, I think, what they refer to in the papers as the tyranny of distance. Is that correct? So this is this idea that um, we use drones, people assume we use drones to collect intelligence on high-value individuals and then carry out these strikes. Uh, one of the things we learned, as Joe's saying from the papers, is that Because drones take so long to get to those high-value individuals, there's often a lot of other intelligence work that goes into confirming these targets. Is that correct?
1: Well, and that we need to be able to, you know, at least the U.S. government, you know, under its current policies, feels that it needs to be able to act on that intelligence quickly. And uh, flying an F-15E Strike Eagle from Djibouti takes a lot shorter amount of time than making sure you have a, a drone on station with the right weapons where you need it to be and so you can call those planes in much quicker than you could call in a drone. I mean drones are relatively slow. They you know their benefit is being able to hang out over one particular area for a protracted period of time, not necessarily being able to race back and forth between particular areas with any kind of speed.
0: I just remember from one of our early, early podcasts talking about drones that actually a number of them are, are prop driven. I mean, really not the not same as a Mach 2 aircraft.
1: No, not at all. And without, without nearly the uh, kind of weapons capability of these larger airplanes either.
2: Another thing I wanted to talk about was the, the language that's used. Uh, the drone papers make a big to-do kind of of the language that the Pentagon uses when it talks about uh, drone strikes. Um, and so I'm talking about things like jackpot for when a drone strike is successful. Um, uh, enemies killed in action. And it it was my understanding, Joe, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that enemies killed in action, within the context of what the drone papers are talking about, are not always necessarily actually enemies.
1: Well, they're not necessarily the enemies that we are targeting. And I think that was an important thing that has been reported on a significant bit before um, independently, but this sort of confirms this General belief that we're not always hitting the intended targets, and we then assume, based on whatever the other additional intelligence we have, is that those people are still enemies. So, at least as far as the military is concerned, it's a wash, um, and then they still get uh, registered as enemies killed in action. But in terms of being the exact target of the strike, you know, the person who they've been supposedly following and tracking for for weeks on end um, after I believe they said the, the maximum length of, of building a, an intelligence profile on a target was something absurd, like 22 years. And that was the maximum. The mean was was significantly shorter than that but i mean you know tracking these people for a really long amount of time and then launching a strike about where you think they might be and not necessarily hitting that person but assuming well they're still terrorists anyway so you know it's not a big deal
0: so that sounds like essentially if you were doing policing it would be arresting an entire neighborhood on the assumption that there were bad people living in it.
1: I think it's more equivalent to kicking down the door of a supposed drug den and arresting everybody in there and saying, well, you're all drug dealers because you happen to be in this building at the same time. You know, it's a, and oddly enough that does happen in policing and so I think maybe there's a there's a consistent issue in in the policy. Um you know, a lot of people want to debate the legality of the policy. I, I'm personally of the view that it's not necessarily illegal, but the efficacy of this policy, I think, is definitely something that that's worthy of debate, for sure.
0: Right. I, I mean, and I guess it's also, I mean, there's, just in, in total fairness, uh, it's possible that the people who they're killing are, in fact, all bad guys, Right? I mean, I'm not talking about the children, the people who have been classified as collateral damage, but... Well,
1: that's sort of the thing, right? I mean, they could all be bad guys. They could be, you know, just bystanders. They could be not. War is Boring actually obtained a spreadsheet of um, civilian casualty allegations during the bombing campaign in Iraq and Syria. And what we found from that ourselves was that a lot of the allegations of civilian casualties were dimis- dismissed as non-credible just because there wasn't enough information to suggest one way or the other. And so the Pentagon made the determination that, you know, using a, what is essentially a legal definition, you know, basically a burden of proof, there's no burden of proof that those people are uh, innocent or that they were killed or that, you know, this incident happened or what have you. Um, and so basically, it's not a problem. But again, it's you know that's insufficient information. That's not necessarily the truth. It's it's a burden of proof there rather than the actual facts.
2: This kind of goes to something that we that you and I were talking about, Joe, a little bit before the the reliance on certain kinds of intelligence when conducting these drone strikes, and. The gaps and the faults in that in in those methods of intelligence, and could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah,
1: signals intelligence what we what we saw in the drone papers is something that's been increasingly coming out um, even before the Snowden revelations, but the Snowden revelations sort of helped uh, you know add more detail to this. Um, basically that signals intelligence i e scooping up uh, radio chatter, um phone calls, things like this has been the primary means of identifying the targets at the end of the sort of at the end of the so-called kill chain. Um you know we spend we spend years developing these profiles on these people, right? But then we actually need to go out and find them and we do this by by tapping their cell phones.
2: And often the target is not necessarily the individual but the SIM card in their identified cell phone.
1: right. I mean, that's that's the thing you're you're locking on to. I mean, most people, these days you can go on YouTube and watch uh, strike footage and that's what drones are seeing. That's what uh, manned spy planes are seeing when it comes to full motion video. And you're not doing facial recognition based on that, that video, even, even at the highest fidelity that we probably don't see you, you know, and this is again, another thing that we talked about in our uh, podcast earlier on drones was that the fidelity in that equipment is just, it's just not high enough to, you can tell it's a person and you know you you could probably know that that person's holding the cell phone you know the terrorist cell phone and so you fire a missile essentially at the cell phone and well that's you know and then and then you find out later whether the person holding it was the guy you wanted or not
2: uh they call these strikes against the cell phones when they are successful touchdowns by the way
0: yeah i mean i i would say Though military lingo, no matter what, it's like, I mean, you can always fault them for it, but it it's never not kind of uh, obscene.
2: I mean, it's a business of killing people. (laughs) You're you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right.
0: I mean, I you know terminate with extreme prejudice. That was one of my favorites from from Vietnam, right?
2: Well, people can't win in this. I mean, you know, people
1: were also you know calling out the euphemism of of referring to these as finishing actions. You know, it's it's I believe that the language is people either complain that it's uh it's too euphemistic or it's too sort of. Uh, jingoistic. You know, there's there's no there's no suitable middle ground. And then if you just started talking about killing people, people would be like, Oh my god, you're killing people. It's like, well, this is a business unfortunately of killing people, and that's why it's so important to discuss the the policy behind doing
0: it. There have been previous reports of exactly how the decision is made of who to kill, when to kill, where to kill them, right? But the intercept sort of got into it in greater depth. I mean can you sort of describe the chain? Yeah, there's one very
1: good slide in one of the briefings that the Intercept obtained that has the, the complete sort of – it's got like 12 steps. So there's, a, there's a whole food chain. Matt, you want to – I'm actually yeah. – I'm,
2: yeah, I'm actually looking at that slide right now or kind of the Intercept's um, interpretation of that slide. Uh, so it starts with J, uh, JSOC task force is watching the target. Um, I want to. I want to just jump
1: in there, right, right there, and say that it's not. I I have been unable to verify that this is a this is a JSOC task force. I, I think JSOC is is like you know every armored vehicle is a tank. Every time you see something, you you don't know it's it's the Joint Special Operations Command. The task force nomenclature and the fact that the bulk of the aircraft are actually maintained by the Air Force. You know it. The whole thing seems you know and there's like Navy components out in the sea it, it seems like it's a it's a Pentagon task force this seems like a whole sort of you know JsOC may be maintaining the hit list you know the the all the all magical hit list of people to look for in cooperation with the Central Intelligence Agency or something like that but I I thought that the intercept you know continued in, in doing what they love to do and just you know everything everything is a drone everything is Jsoc and I I think it's important just to point out that There's a task force, but we don't know what
2: it is. Someone is watching the target. Their information gets fed up to CENTCOM commander, currently General James Mattis, which gets fed up to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which gets fed up to the Secretary of Defense. And from there goes to something called the Principals Committee, which is made up of the president's, essentially his closest advisors. And then they put the, the information in front of President Obama, and then he signs off on the strike, and it's important to note that he doesn't sign off on each individual strike, but instead gives them a sixty-day window in which to conduct the operation.
0: Can you explain sort of the difference there? I mean, so it's like he—they can—is can, it they can try multiple times in that sixty days or something?
1: The suggestion from the briefings is that they yes they can because one of the. One of the examples that's in one of the briefings is an instance where they failed to locate the guy, and then had to try. They had to basically come around again a few days later and do it again.
2: So right, and if they and if they fall out of that sixty-day window, they do have to do the entire intelligence chain again if they want to strike the same target.
0: That really does sound like. We're, I mean, all of that responsibility for, and we're talking about individuals, right? I mean, that, that are being targeted, however many people end up getting killed in a strike. I mean, the idea is that they're going after specific individuals. But some of the most powerful people in the United States are actually making these decisions. I mean, there's a process. It's not a judicial process, but it's just so interesting that you're talking about you know people who you see on tv all the time right who are are actually i mean this is part of their job is going through the list and, and actually checking off the box is that about right
1: or at least their staff i mean it clearly has to go through their offices you know somebody has to yeah somebody has to claim to have seen it
2: and it's um, i think another thing that's important to note is that most of the information that was leaked to the intercept that constitutes the drone papers is about 2 years old I think the old, I think the newest document they have is from twenty thirteen. That does that does not necessarily mean that all this, that everything that they talk about is now out of fashion. Oh, d- definitely but, not. Yeah. <laughs> but but I think that that's just kind of a little caveat to that's important to put in there.
1: That was a, that was another interesting thing is that uh, in one of the briefings there were citations for Pentagon study reports on. Um, killing these so-called high-value individuals as old as 2008 it's being cited in these reports again looking at the the pitfalls and the efficacy of the program so I mean they've been they've really been trying to figure out if it's working or not because I mean that was in the briefings I mean the, there there were significant numbers of finishing actions every day in places like Afghanistan during the reporting periods and it's I think it was something like uh, an average of six uh, strikes against high-value individuals every day in Afghanistan during the the reporting period in the briefing. So
2: That's a neat transition into what I think we should talk about now, and what we've already touched on a little bit, is do these targeted killings work? Is this an efficient and effective means of conducting war?
1: There definitely seems to be a non, you know, never-ending stream of high-value individuals. It it does make, you know, that I, I wrote a piece on this for War Is Boring earlier uh, in the week before we recorded this, and that was sort of my conclusion is that there there seems to be a lot of high-value individuals, and one has to wonder then uh, does does that mean that it's working if they just fill those ranks in? Like the next day, we, we we kill a lot of number twos. Is sort of my favorite phrase. Being number two sucks. <laughs> yeah, that's
0: uh, that, uh, that's true. That is what gets reported all over the place. They've killed uh, yeah, or the guy who's number two in charge of social media for ISIS, or he was a very high uh, ranking member. They, you know, although although I do actually, I think in case of ISIS, I think they actually got the social media guy um, and. Yeah, but it is—it's a good question just in general because it's also not a new policy. I mean, it may be a, a new way of going and getting people, and and but on the other hand, the Israelis, for example, I mean that's one of that that it's almost like we learned that tactic from them, I and mean, they used it against Palestinians. I don't know how effectively, but I mean, I, I I think they think it's effective.
1: Well, I think it's a war fighting tactic. I mean, you you you're applying a traditional war fighting tactic to a to a situation that may not be traditional war fighting, because really, uh, when you blow up a command center in a conventional war, what are you doing? You are attempting to kill those leaders inside. You are you are attempting to neutralize the ability of your enemy to command and control their forces in the field. You are attempting to prevent them from waging their war by by knocking out their senior leadership. I mean, you know from From when sharpshooters first appeared on the battlefield, knocking out senior leadership is is not a new thing, but it may it may work in a tactical sense. you know uh, it probably was very effective during the Civil War when you were picking off generals and, and other senior people commanding troops right there on the front lines, and then everything would break down when nobody knew what was going on anymore but
2: right but you were also fighting a conventional war oh right, at the yeah. same time. Um, and so I think my thought is that this is politically expedient. Um, there's a low political cost in America for conducting operations this way, but without other more conventional types of warfare, it feels ineffective. Well, and there just aren't any other targets. Which yeah. sort
1: of brings up again, you know. Uh, when, when you go into battle against a conventional military, you know, you maybe you can blow up their supply lines, or you can blow up all their vehicles, and you can, you can convince them that waging war just isn't going to work, and they will surrender and the rest of it, but when you come down to sort of nebulous terrorist groups who don't really have anything, and you know, yeah, Islamic State is seizing territory. Islamic State is trying to operate like a functional government, but they're still not doing that just yet, and so is the plan then to kill them all? That's sort of that's often where I get sort of confused because I mean, if if you're if if you have decided that the personnel is the only asset that is that is reasonable to strike, then then the then unless they just decide to roll over and die one day, I mean the plan is to kill them all.
0: That's interesting. I, I actually really hadn't thought about it that way, but. I know that uh, the Preferred has, hasn't worked very well against ISIS, which is, I mean, they had hoped that by bringing in mo- bombers they'd take care of all their tanks or, you know, be able to g- get large masses of people together in one place and blow them up. And I guess what you're saying makes a lot of sense in that the air war, they haven't been able to carry it out that way. Everybody just disappears into the hillside or the countryside.
1: If you remember, in the first couple of months of the air war, there was a pretty never-ending stream of blowing up captured Humvees, especially. Um, and blowing up captured armor and artillery. And then that, that dropped off when, the, when those targets dried up. And then when you started seeing, I mean, if, if you read uh, the reports these days, the reports are uh, ISIL fighting position. Uh, ISIL building is one I've seen. It just says ISIL building is the target. Um, a motorcycle, a ISIL motorcycle was a target. A ISIL rocket propelled grenade was a target. I mean, these are these are amazingly minor targets when it gets down to it. You know, vague and minor targets. And it just really makes you wonder. It's like, well... If, you're not, if, if you can't rely on the Iraqi military to then go in and recapture those areas, what is left for the coalition to do from the air? I mean, because there's just gonna, there, there is a lack of, of large, sensible targets to bomb after a certain point. You know, John Pike of globalsecurity.org used to always joke about, you know, you get into situations where all that's left to do is bounce the rubble. And that's not really a useful expenditure of your energy. And that's why you see, actually, uh, even uh, by the end of last year, there were reports coming out that the uh, coalition over Iraq and Syria, they were flying X number of missions, but they were only dropping ordnance on 25% of those sorties. They would fly out, but only in a quarter of the instances would they actually fire a missile or drop a bomb, just because there just wasn't anything else to do.
0: Yeah, there wasn't actually a target to hit with it, so they didn't waste the bombs. I mean, considering the fact that bombs cost tens of thousands of dollars, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. But that that sort of brings us back, I mean, it really is then a circular argument, because what makes sense to do? Well, it makes sense to try to target high-value individuals, right? If you can't bomb a base or a hardware or anything like that, then maybe... The dr- then maybe you go with surveillance drones coming up with lists and
1: I, I agree i mean you know you sort of come around to you can see where this line of thinking comes from for sure because you know this is this is what you have got and and if you're going with a traditional military theory of trying to find that's you know the what you know what we pull out of of Clausewitz as the center of gravity the thing you have to hit for them to give up. Well, you know, maybe leaders are the thing to do. You know, maybe maybe killing these leaders is the thing to do.
2: I think though when the force is so ideologically backed that I feel that that becomes the center of gravity and I don't know how to how to knock that center of gravity out and I'm not sure that high value individuals is the way to go about doing it.
1: Well, I think that's the that's the difficult question and I think it's one that we've for you know it's basically we've decided that to not try and answer that complicated question and instead decided that maybe if we just kill enough of these leaders that we'll we'll get to the we'll get to the breaking point rather than you know what i mean because there's a there's a pittance of money spent on you know what is broadly i think referred to still as countering violent extremism you know they forget exactly what the the euphemism in, in Pentagon speak is for this these days, but it involves you know running uh, Arabic language websites and local language websites to provide you know news you know it's it's white propaganda you know it it, it, it supports the the official government lines in in places like Iraq and in North Africa you know the, the many countries in North Africa in these places you know and so there there's there are programs like that but I mean we're we're talking you know, millions rather than billions of dollars.
0: I wrote a story about it uh, not that long ago for Reuters, we were talking about, or I think it was something I actually, I'm pretty sure I edited it. So I apologize to the writer. Um, But looking at that exact thing, I mean, it's so hard to do it in any way that's, not a better word for it, cool. You know, when the State Department does videos which it does. It has an anti-Islamic you know, propaganda branch that's supposed to come up with these videos. It has a few million dollars um, to do it. And yeah, it's a small amount of money, but I mean, you know, these are not exactly, these video productions are not that high quality. And it just, it looks like, you know, don't do drugs, you know, just say no. It looks like, uh, you know, stop smoking.
2: Especially when compared with the the stuff that Islamic state puts out, it's just the 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 quality and the engagement is just not there
1: that's because that's all they do you know they're 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 social media guys they're they are fine tuned you know
2: yeah absolutely
0: yeah it's it's an unequal battlefield there too I think once again uh we've managed to uh
2: talk ourselves. Yeah, we, uh, we would come talk up ourselves with. into depression. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I don't want to pretend that I have a good solution in this either. You know, if anybody wants to accuse me of not offering a an answer, then after criticizing basically everything, well, I, it's because I don't. It it is a hard question, and I I uh, give credit to anybody who's ever tried to solve it. It's not a it's not a simple issue.
0: No, um, and I think I will just have to leave it there. But uh, I want to say thanks to Joe and Matt. Do you want to say a few words to the kind people out there?
2: Like and subscribe. We are on iTunes. We are on SoundCloud. If you guys follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to us on iTunes and give us a rating, all of that stuff helps us out and helps us keep producing more War College for you. Next time on War College. Stalin was
1: 75% violence and 25% propaganda. Putin is 75% propaganda and 25% violence.